Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your hot takes, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else posted on the YouTube community tab over 24 hours ago. Of course, this is the post-Australian Open mega mailbag, which means I haven't done a mailbag in quite a bit, and it's one of the four most exciting times in tennis. Your comments have been festering all these time, all this time. And no surprise, there was a major uptick in comments this week, well into the triple digits. As a result, I'm going to go about an hour and a half for this mailbag, and I'm going to try to get through these comments a little bit more quickly than usual, although sometimes I say I'm going to do that, and then I don't actually do it. I'm going to actually try to stick to it. Before I get started, an announcement. I am launching a tennis newsletter. It is a weekly curation, a one-stop shop, if you will, for the best tennis content on the internet once per week. It will post every Tuesday into your email inbox. Again, a curation of great tennis content that I find across a variety of platforms. Uh, there will be an email to send the newsletter content, and um, you know I will continue to get better at gathering content from different areas. It's not about uh, just promoting Monday match analysis. It's about bringing all great content together into one place. It is called The Draw. Subscribe with the link in the description or thedrawtennis.beehive.com. Beehive spelled B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Again, link in the description. Okay, let's get to the first comment. It comes from Valdesita. Hi, Gil. Always appreciate your astute tennis insights. Has Alcaraz stalled or taken a step back since Wimbledon compared to the rest of the top four? He hasn't won a title and has only made one final, Cincinnati. The last six months have shown a lot of cracks in his game. Rushed forehand, dropping the ball short, unstable serve at times to name a few, lack of adaptation to opponents and unclear tactics, alongside poor mentality and focus in spite of the injuries. I don't know what injuries you're, am I forgetting some, have there been injuries? Anyway, he has a lot of points to defend in the coming months and could see a slip in the rankings to even fourth. Where does he go from here? I understand he's still 20 and I don't mean to be critical. I am the biggest Carlitos fan. Yeah, this was the top like comment, 50 likes. Um, all right, well, look, in terms of the tennis, I just want to see him get back to making higher percentage decisions on a more consistent basis and not getting into these patches of inconsistency, which are punished more severely when you're not getting a lot of free points or easy opportunities uh, with your first serve, which Alcaraz just doesn't really have the luxury of, of having. I mean, it just puts consistency and steadiness at a premium when returns are constantly coming back into play. I just think mentally, and we talked about a lot of this stuff with Steve Flink, uh, I, I think he's lost a little bit of confidence. I think he's starting to feel the weight of a somewhat of a slump that he's been in, which is typical of a 20-year-old. Young players, they get high. They get too high and they get too low, generally. They start to feel the effects of their losses. They go into slumps. Look at some of the slumps that Holger Runa has, has been in early in his career, for example. Like, he's had stretches of months and months where he wins like just one match because he's just so in such a bad place with himself. It happens to young players. 
much more often than it happens to veterans because once you mature and you get used to life on tour, I think you, you start to understand how to not get too high and not get too low. And I'm wondering if Alcaraz hasn't quite mastered that. In the same breath, I expect that once he does get a really positive result, it'll probably just snap him right back on track. And I could see him going on another hot streak as soon as he puts together, you know, his next really good week. I, I want to respond to also one more thing you said in here that you say he might slip in the rankings to fourth. I agree, he might, but why does that matter? Like, I want to be critical about asking that question. Why does that matter? So certainly when it comes to the rankings, there's a seeding aspect to it. You do want better seeding. That helps you succeed on the tour, no doubt about it. But there's no difference between being a three seed and a four seed. And really, if we're, if we're looking at the current top four, if you're one through four, you're good. You're pretty much good if you're one through four. Once you're five, now you are risking a quarterfinal opponent that you certainly don't want to see. I also think year-end ranking matters. Just is a is a really good kind of end-of-year barometer for how well you did over the course of the calendar year. And I think that matters. But does it matter if Alcaraz is four in the world come Wimbledon because he, you know, just doesn't quite have as many points on his rankings after maybe losing some of the points that he gained in the first half of last year where he was absolutely unbelievable. And then he gains them back in the second half. Like, what does that matter? If you know what I mean. So I don't think it matters if he drops to fourth at all. I don't think I have much more to add than, than that. All right, next one is from User. Hey, Gil, in the semis of the Australian Open, there were four players with four of the best backhands in the world. How would you rate their backhands in categories such as consistency, pace, depth, height, angle, open stance, and down the line? Obviously, at the tournament, which Sinner won, he will be really high at all categories. So try to rate them in terms of more general level. Thank you for analysis. Love them. Great point. Great backhands in this uh, Australian Open semifinals. So we're dealing with Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev, and Sinner. Those are our four players. So let's go category by category. Consistency, I would say Daniil. I think Medvedev has the most consistent backhand. Uh, pace, to me it's between Zverev and Sinner. And that's a tough call between those two. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Zverev. I'm gonna go Zverev for pace, depth. That's between Djokovic and Medvedev. Both of them are phenomenal. I will go. Mm, I still think Daniil. I mean, Novak takes more time away, which makes your depth more powerful. But I would still go Daniil. Okay, height, net clearance. I don't know that any of them play with a lot of net clearance on their backhand. But if we're talking about like the, the high heavy ball, I, I think Sinner probably uses that the most. None of them really hit their backhand with a lot of height on a regular basis. Angle. 
Angoal goes Sinner. I think Sinner has the best left wrist uh, where he kind of, when he's looking to do it, and once again, I don't think that any of these four stand out as players who are constantly hitting the short angle cross-court backhand, which is just a, a rare, it's a rare tool these days to see. Like players don't use it that often. Normally on the forehand, you just hit shorter angles, sharper angles. Uh, but I think Sinner does the best job of getting around the left side of the ball and kind of rolling over his backhand on the cross court. Open stance. That's Djokovic. I think there's no doubt that's Djokovic. I mean, he's got, he gets the most on the ball, I would say, when he's stretched out to his backhand using the open stance backhand. And probably also the most precise when he's in that position as well. So that to me, I mean, Medvedev does pretty well with it defensively, but not, not even a hesitation. It's Novak for me on that one. Down the line. Down the line, I look, it's tough because it's probably either Medvedev or Djokovic. Djokovic probably is able to do it effectively more often. I think taking time away is part of it for for Novak and he gets a little more on the ball. I'm just I'm very I'm very almost tempted to go Medvedev just because of the way that ball tails off the court and I I think it's so effective. I think from the middle of the court Medvedev does a really good job of hitting the off backhand or the inside out backhand. Djokovic does it really well as well. Um, so I think it's either Djokovic or Medvedev, but I'm going to go with Novak. So I guess we have a good mix here, right? I went with Zverev for pace, uh, Medvedev for consistency and depth, nobody for height, Sinner for angle, Djokovic for open stance and down the line. Next one is from member Ronnie Gao. You can become a member by hitting the join button, contribute to the channel for $2 per month on YouTube. Goes a long way, supporting the channel, short-term and long-term. And uh, there's also a link to that in the description. All right, from Ronnie. Hey, Gil, thanks for the coverage during this thrilling tournament. Hope you're caught up with enough sleep by now. If I can take a pause for a second, thank you for everybody very concerned with my sleep. I believe the dark circles under my eyes have started to go away. They have receded, uh, which is a good thing. But hey, it's it's worth it. It's not always easy, the uh, the time difference in the Australian Open content grind, but it is more than worth it, and I am very happy to do it. And I do also appreciate the appreciation from, from you guys on, on your end. Okay. There's this theory that attributes the reign of the big three at Grand Slams, which has been more dominant than their female counterparts, to the best of five sets format. The reasoning is simply a matter of mathematics. For a top-ranked player, more sets played in a match is always good news, as upsets are less likely to happen in best of five than best of three. This could explain why it often seems harder for a female world number one and number two to consistently win Grand Slam titles or even make Grand Slam finals. To what extent do you agree or disagree with this argument? By the way, I'll add that if logic holds, it also makes uh, makes Graf and Serena's records even more impressive than they already are. 
Yeah, this is an argument I've seen a lot. I think undoubtedly there is a measure of truth to it, that the larger sample size you have over the course of a match, in this case, we're going from best of three sample size to a best of five sample size, the more skilled player is going to have a better chance of winning in the longer sample size. No doubt, no doubt about it. Now, I also take issue with folks who go take that argument so far and say that that is the reason for the disparity. That completely explains the disparity in dominance at the top of men's tennis versus women's tennis. To me, there's a very, very simple way to refute that theory, and that is just look at who's won the most Masters 1000 of all time. Just just look at that, and then you'll see, oh, maybe it's not just best of five, best of three. Djokovic in first, 40. Nadal is in second, 36. Federer is in third, 28. That kind of looks like that kind of looks like what it is for majors, doesn't it? Agassiz in fourth with 17. Murray's in fifth with 14. Sampras uh, has 11. So that is one guy who I guess was more of a slam peaker. But I do know that in terms of Masters series and 1000s, there have been some format changes and some tweaks, and that might affect what the history books look like. Obviously, uh, we're not gonna, we can't say like how many Masters 1000s Rod Laver won or, or anything like that. But I would just encourage those who think that it's all about best of five, and that's why Novak, Rafa, and Federer dominated because of best of five. I would just be like, uh, you wanna look at who won the most Masters 1000s? Wanna check that out? You know, in their prime, they kind of dominated those as well. Next one from Nicholas Von Schantz, also a member. Thank you. On Djokovic motivation, even Nole himself seems surprised by the flat performance he showcased in the AO semifinal against Sinner. Aside from the possibility of just having a bad day at the office, do you think the lack of motivational factors might have been at play here as he never seemed to get truly fired up? Last year, for instance, you had reaching 10 titles, equaling Nadal's Grand Slam tally, and redemption for the 2022 AO saga as plenty of fuel for going along the way, or going all the way. I'd also throw in the, the U.S. Open. On a more general note, do you see any pure tennis-related carrots left for him, or will he increasingly need to manufacture them himself to have continued success on the big stage, playing in front of his kids, feeding off of the crowd, etc.? All right, well, first of all, and the context, by the way, for this comment, for those of you who maybe have discovered the channel more recently or uh, haven't been listening to me for a long time, I have long had the opinion that Djokovic's motivation is likely to fail him before his body does. That when Djokovic retires, and I've never made a prediction as to when that will be, but my prediction has always been that when it happens, it will be because the the fire has gone out and he, he just is not able to really motivate himself anymore uh, because I think the body is probably going to hold up for uh, four or five years more like uh, in the ballpark of that. I don't think it's going anywhere. Anyway, I'm not ready to say that, yeah, it was a flat performance and 
you heard me after the match. I totally agree that he never got fired up. Was there some illness stuff at play? What was that play? I don't know. Like, we don't need to continue to debate and try to figure out what the reason was. But I, I will not say that motivation was a factor until I see some sort of a trend or a pattern. Again, it's an outlier performance. And if there is a motivation problem for Novak, that's going to be something systematic that we see throughout the year constantly. I don't want to say consistently, constantly. Because motivation, it's not something that usually goes in and out and in and out week to week to week. It comes down to how you're training and how you're focusing. And usually you're not going to see somebody look like Benoit Pair one week and Nadal the next. If you know what I mean. So if motivation is a problem for Djokovic, we're going to see it over the over the course of a long period of time. Not going to go there after one match, after the fantastic season that he had last year. Also, in the semifinal, he was playing Yannick Sinner, who had beaten him in two of their last three matches at the end of last year. So there's a reason to get fired up for that semifinal. This guy beat you at Davis Cup. That's a speckle of, of motivation when you run into a player who's beaten you two out of the last three times in your Novak Djokovic. And then uh, the last thing I'll say is if he does need to manufacture the uh, motivational carrots, as you called them, himself, he's quite good at that. And this is an Olympic year. I think that's his North Star this year. That's going to help him along the way. And we'll see what else he's able to find. I have a feeling... I have a feeling... This is going to be a big year for Djokovic that he's going to play well. That is still how I feel about it. Next one's from Matthew Malagari. Hey, Gil, what have been some of your favorite tennis outfits worn by the guys on tour? Are there any that stand out for good or bad reasons? Hope you can finally catch up on sleep now that the AO is over. Tennis outfits. Look, this is more of a question for Eliza Wasco, who you should follow on Instagram. And uh, if, if you want to see content about tennis fashion, also as a YouTube channel, Liza West. Tennis outfits that tend to capture my heart are, are black. They, they tend to have a lot of black. I don't know why. Obviously, there's a famous one, which is, I think it was US Open 2007, Darth Federer. I love that. I thought he looked awesome. Uh, and then a lot of guys have had the, those moments. Um, Del Potro at the U.S. Open in 2009. I really liked that kit with uh, the sleeveless black. I don't know if what he did at that tournament makes it remembered more fondly for me. And then I believe uh, Rafa had that black and purple one. And purple is actually, believe it or not, my favorite color. It was one of his U.S. Open kits. Let me look it up on Google Images. I'm going to go Nadal, U.S. Open, black and purple, and see if it comes up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that kit looks unbelievable in my opinion. What year was this? Uh, it looks like he played, it looks like he played Zverev this year. Um, 2019. So Nadal's US Open 29 kit, 2019 kit. Uh, now obviously you feel bad. You know, I mentioned Federer. I mentioned Nadal. I don't mention Novak Djokovic. Has Djokovic like ever worn black? I never see Djokovic wear black. Let's see. I'm Google images in Google. Is that a verb? Images in. I see a Sergio Tacchini 
kit with black for Djokovic, but I just don't think it's Lacoste's vibe. Also, shout out to Ben Shelton for, for his outfit. I think the last two majors on running has done a great job. I think he looked good at this Australian Open. I think he looked really good at the U.S. Open. Again, it's like it's black with some popping kind of complementary color. And uh, I don't know. I'm saying a lot of sleeveless kits, so maybe that's also a soft spot. You got to have the, the guns, I guess, to, to complement that. But, um, yeah, I guess those are the outfits that I, I tend to think look the best. Hi, Gil. Is the new era of tennis finally here? I feel like at RG and Wimbledon in the semis, we might see fully different players or maybe one same and three others. Sinner and Medvedev are highly unlikely to get to the RG semis. I don't know that I agree with that. Uh, do you think the new era of tennis will, unlike the big three slash four era, have much more player variety? Great content, Gil. Uh, no, I do not feel this way at all. I, I included this comment because... I, I do think it's interesting, and I think it's probably something that people continue to think about, but I I have never been more convinced that we are not heading into a more wide-open era. I retweeted a tweet recently. It was from Vonch. Uh, the new, if you look at the new ATP Top 10 after the Australian Open, Djokovic has over uh, no, almost 10,000 points. Alcaraz has a little over 9,000 points. Medvedev has a little under 9,000. Sinner has a bit over 8,000, about 8,500. Rublev has 5,000 points, 5,000 ranking, ranking points. So there is a massive gap between Sinner at four in the world right now and Rublev at five in the world. That's a numerical representation of something that I have felt and, and noticed over the course of the last year, which is that this top four is a really, really good top four. And I do not doubt their ability to dominate on a consistent basis. Next one is from Le Kennedy. Hey, Gil, in the finals post-match press conference, Sinner reminded us of his process-based mentality, of his will to improve, and how this win for him is, quote, just the beginning. If you were Simone Vagnozzi, what would you now focus on, given that your player is one of the most complete on tour? Maybe trying to learn how to counter the kind of tactical challenges posed by Medi in the first two sets, perhaps to have more consistency in the forehand and defensive situations? Let me know, and thanks for all the amazing content. I wish I had a better answer for this question right now. The truth is that is going to become more clear when Yannick loses some matches, which will happen. This is this is how tennis goes. There will come a point where Sinner is going to cool off no matter what. Even if he's the best player of all time, he's going to cool off at some point. And then I'm going to be in a better position to answer this because I'm going to be able to see why he lost. But he really just hasn't lost in like any meaningful way. Shelton served him off the court. I don't think that's really a way to beat him consistently. Djokovic, amazing spot serving, unbelievable ground stroke aggression when it comes to early ball striking, pace, 
changing of direction down the line. I mean, I don't think that's really, that's just great tennis. That's not attacking a hole of Yannick Sinners or a weakness of Yannick Sinners. I would say that maybe if you look at the Djokovic performance in the final of the year-end championship, and then you look at the Medvedev performance in the first two sets in the Australian Open final, there is a certain rushability factor. And this is also something that, that spans back to before Sinner's hot streak. You can rush the forehand. You can maybe bring a lot of pace into his forehand, make him run into his forehand side, and uh, maybe get some errors through doing that. But when it comes to what does he need to improve, what does he need to focus on, I think Darren Cahill made a, made a really good point, actually, in, in his press conference about what the next step is. The next step is mentally dealing with the effects of winning your first major. That means dealing with higher expectation from here on out. That means staying fired up, staying hungry from here on out. That's that's an adjustment, right? That's something that Carlos Alcaraz has had to deal with at certain points when he's had his great successes is how do you respond mentally? And also, continue to work on your strengths. Who's to say that Yannick Sinner can't get even fitter? Who's to say? Um, who's to say that his serve can't get even better? If you're going to approach this question from a standpoint of Gil, what weaknesses should he now start to work on? I got nothing for you. I don't know. I got to see him lose some matches at the very least before I'm prepared to answer that. Next one from Maciek. Rohan Bopana, oldest Grand Slam winner. Any thoughts? I am delighted. Also, Shea Sue is Australian Open doubles winner, uh, women's doubles and mixed doubles. Yeah, how about some fantastic storylines on the double side for the Aussie? Uh, I didn't I didn't watch as much as I probably would if the time zone was better when it comes to doubles. But uh, look, Bopan is an unbelievable story. Literally incredible. First of all, I just go back and I think of how young I was when the Indo-Pak Express was, uh, was on the tracks when he made that U.S. Open final with Cresci and there was some political significance to that or geopolitical significance to that, obviously, because India and Pakistan, uh, Cresci being Pakistani. And man, I was so young. I'm so young when that happened. To think that that guy has just won his first major and become number one in the world now is unbelievable. It feels like a lifetime ago. So that's really cool. Uh, there was also a, a really great piece written by Zania Dakuna uh, for ESPN India that I will share in this week's newsletter, The Draw. It will be in there. And that was an amazing piece that outlined how Bopana was kind of in, in the shadows of some of his Indian doubles counterparts like Leander Pays and uh, Pupati. And that now he's kind of had his moment as the top gun uh, in the sun. So his moment in the sun. So great story. Shea Sue, 
Also a great story. Both Shea Sue and Rohan Bopana have had some some moments where it seemed like they were going to call it quits. And here they are. Incredible. Next one's from user. Hi, Gil. It feels like glad to see that you're a user. Congratulations. Hi, Gil. It feels like we are seeing more and more matches that someone comes back from a two sets deficit. Do you think it is a notable trend and why? Thank you for the great content. I, I don't know if that's true statistically or not, but maybe it is. And I should maybe ask somebody to look into that. It wouldn't surprise me if it's true. And it wouldn't surprise me because everybody is in way better shape now. It's no secret. Everybody is in way better shape. They are eating better. They are warming up better. They are cooling down better. They are stretching more. They are dieting better. They are probably being more responsible in a lot of ways with some of the things that are unhealthy for a tennis player to do. Some more than others, but everybody's in better shape. Let's face it. So is it really surprising that there's more comebacks from down two sets? No, I don't think so. It wouldn't be surprising. Everybody's in better shape. Next one from Gopali. According to you, is Medvedev the best one slam player ever with Roddick being a close second? Other options include Del Potro, Goran, Ivanisevic, etc. Well, look, if, if Medvedev were retiring right now, I would probably go through the effort of putting all these guys next to each other statistically and having a hard look at this to, uh, to really try to get to a good answer on it. I didn't take the time to do that, but in one way, that's because Daniil's not done yet. And I certainly think that he's going to have a lot of chances to win a second slam. Right now, my hunch, my inclination is that he, he would be the best one slam player ever if he ended now with just the one title. The one thing that Roddick has, I can say off the top of my head, uh, Roddick has it, Medvedev doesn't, is the year-end number one, which is a great accomplishment. But Roddick, I think his was 2003. It was probably easier. It was definitely easier to be year-end number one in 2003 than it would have been for Medvedev since 2019 at, at any point. Del Potro, the... The injuries play a massive role here, but obviously you don't get you don't get a boost, you don't get a bonus points in in this conversation for what ifs, like what if he would have stayed healthy. And then for Ivanisevic, if you look at his slam resume, he was kind of a Wimbledon specialist. And that's the problem with comparing eras, is in Ivanisevic's time, that was a little bit more typical. You'd see a lot more players who would excel at Wimbledon and kind of do nothing at Roland Garros. So then maybe they're decent at the hardcourt slams. And, you know, Medvedev's just in an era where you're going to be more all surface. But from a resume standpoint, there's no doubt about it that Daniil has compiled uh, a better resume already than, than Ivanisevic. So I'll leave it at that. Good question. Weigh in in the comments if you feel strongly. Next comment is from Roberto KB, another member. 
Hi, Gil. Thanks for your AO coverage. Great as usual. I wanted to comment on Medvedev's performance in the final. I found it extremely impressive how far he was willing to go to change his style of play, especially return position, to give himself a chance after having concluded that top players had cracked the code on his usual game. I think this drive to improve is what clearly separates him from others in his generation and is the main reason why he's able to take that extra step to compete with Djokovic and keep up with the new Tier 1 generation, unlike Zverev and Tsitsipas. I think he is usually not given enough credit for all of this and is generally underrated. Additionally, now that he is a bit calmer on court and in interviews, it is easy to see that he is just a genuinely nice guy with a distinct personality that adds some color and a variety of characters at the top of the tour. All right, where do I begin with this? A lot of points here. I would say for a little while, Medvedev was not making a lot of improvements in his game. There was a stagnation. I was never critical of Medvedev for that stagnation because I just felt that there were some things that he was never going to be able to do anything about. Uh, just partially his athletic makeup. Like, I don't think he's very strong in the upper body. And I don't know that he would ever get to that place. And I think his, I at least at one point, I thought his technique was going to make it impossible for him to really reach a point where he's generating high ground stroke speeds. And then last year, we started to see, I think for the first time, a little bit of him innovating, changing the technology in his racket, making his forehand bigger, generating a lot better than I thought he would ever be able to. That was last year. This year, we're seeing him take it to another level, learn how to mix up his return position. But I would say from 2019 through 2022, Medvedev was not someone who was doing a lot of improving, which was okay at least because he was at a good enough level, I thought, where he wouldn't be frustrated. Uh, I thought that he got to a level in his game where he was going to give himself to win a, ma uh, a chance to win majors and ultimately win majors, and that happened for him. But it wasn't until recently where I, th I thought he was really improving a lot. So that's the answer to the first thing. Certainly Zverev and Tsitsipas, I, I completely agree with you. They have not been very good at making improvements. Zverev has done good work on his serve, ultimately. It took a really long time. But eventually, he's gotten it to a point where you don't really worry much about his second serve. So credit for that. Uh, and then, yeah, mentally, I mean, Medvedev said he went on vacation for the first time in a while. And on that vacation, he had a lot of time to reflect on who he is as a person as a, and as a player. And upon that reflection, he has decided to make some changes to his, on, his character on and off the court and his priorities and his general disposition. So that is another form of improvement. That is another form of innovation. And that was a big deal at this year's Australian Open. It's underrated. I know I've focused more on the technical stuff. It tends to be what I do. But make no mistake, the fact that he was able to stay calm and not go off the deep end mentally in one of these matches, not get so bothered by something that he starts to waste energy and lose focus, that was a big deal. So absolutely right. And also, I totally agree with you. 
that his personality is a very good one in terms of entertainment value. I think he's the best press conference on tour. I don't think anybody gives more insight and more interesting nuggets in a press conference than Medvedev. Nobody. Anonymous. Hi, Gil. I'm relatively new to watching professional tennis. Coming from a background in the NBA and NFL, I sometimes feel like tennis commentary, broadcast, and analysis is very rudimentary. For example, after most points, I feel like uh, it just pans to the crowd, shows a replay, with the commentary not really adding any deep insight, knowledge, or entertainment. However, when listening to your post-match coverage, I really am able to learn about patterns, data, and the history of tennis. How and what will it take to expand coverage of tennis to the next level and increase interest in the sport? Look, I, I think that there are multiple levels to this. On one hand, I think broadcast could do a better job of pushing the envelope when it comes to deep insight, deep data, and really getting in the weeds of what's happening in a match. I do see I do see that aspect getting better and better. I really do. I've seen a lot of progress. I think the Australian Open uh, World Feed people do a great job, for example. From a production standpoint, I think they incorporate a lot of good uh, graphical uh, and like... I think they do a lot of good things on the production side. I also think they have a, they hire a lot of good talent to complement what they do on the production side to give a very tennis, tennis nerd-centric uh, broadcast. Just scratch the itch. Now, it's very important that you're also serving... You're also serving other audiences, not just the diehard tennis fans. Uh, you're having fun with it. You're explaining certain things. You are not using crazy terminology that nobody knows what it means all the time. All that stuff is important too. That's one part of it. So on one part of it, it is up to broadcasts to do those things well. On the other hand, you're always going to see, in my opinion, the internet and the podcast community, you're always going to see on some level an elevated level of intelligence and depth in that space compared to mainstream stuff, compared to broadcast stuff. You see that, for example, on like NFL pregame shows where like the whole format, everything about it is super basic. You don't really learn much about football from watching those shows, but then you you look at an NFL podcast or you go on YouTube and you find someone who's breaking stuff down in depth and you're just getting a smarter product. So part of it is, I think, just building up this space that I'm occupying right now. And uh, big news in this, this week, which is that Andy Roddick is starting a YouTube channel and launching a podcast and doing a lot of the, uh, in terms of the format, a lot of the same kind of stuff that I do. It sounds like he's going to be doing Q&A. He's going to be doing some breakdowns and stuff. So, boy, that's a big deal. Obviously, Andy is very good at this. He brings a built-in credibility that even I can't even dream of having at any point. My hope is that 
my hope is that stuff like that is going to, even though I'm not Andy and that technically he's going to come in and compete in the same space. I, my hope is that that's going to lift up all of us, that that's going to help everybody. And it's going to get, first of all, it's going to bring in more tennis fans. It's going to get more fans watching tennis. That's the first thing. But the fans who do watch tennis, who are interested in tennis, are going to get in the habit of not just engaging in the matches, but also engaging in uh, the content side of it, which I think is more prominent and more common in other sports, which is one of the reasons why I've launched the draw, because I think everybody should be doing better in the tennis content space than they currently are. And I want to elevate... Like, I've done decently well at this. I've built comparatively, um, and it's all relative, but I've done all right at, at this. I want to lift up other people, other streams of content. Least I can do, and I think it helps all of us. So that's my really long answer. I don't know if I totally went off the deep end in that answer, but hey. I'll try to get Andy on. I'll shoot him an email. Next one from John Palmer. Hey, Gil, as we approach the later stages of Djokovic and Nadal's careers, I'm sad about the potential end of the three podcast when Djoko plus Rafa eventually retire. Would you consider launching a 3-2.0, maybe focused on a new set of players like Alcaraz, Sinner, and maybe Runa? Thanks for all the AO coverage. Uh, yeah, just want to first of all address the fact that there hasn't been a post-Australian Open 3. Don't read into it, please. Uh, something came up. Not going to say what it is. It is, uh, it's a personal matter. And as a result of that, we decided not to record uh, post-Australian Open, obviously on the heels of, of Djokovic's loss to Sinner. And that's it. We will be back. I don't want to say exactly when will we, we will be back because I'm not exactly sure. But don't worry, we'll be back. In terms of the, the long-term future of the podcast, we're not going to stop. I, I do not think that it's going to be a 3-2.0 with different players, but um, we have some ideas, and I fully expect that myself, Joel, and Amy will be podcasting about tennis in some capacity long after uh, Djokovic, Rafa, and even Novak retire. So I just did want to say that. From Noah's. Hi, Gil. For the young guns that had successful showings at this year's AO, who do you think will have more success on the tour, Kazo or Prismich? I don't know yet. I got to see a little bit more before I'm uh, making that call or that comparison. I got to say, for Prismich, I think the main concern is just weapons. Is the serve and the forehand big enough? Or is he going to come on court and there's no easy way for him to win points consistently. And as a result, you have a guy who it's just very, you know, it could be very difficult for him to make really good players play enough defense to have success and also against those really good players to be able to hang with them with a more defensive and neutral centric style. I don't know. We'll see. But for Prismich, that's the main concern. Uh, for Kazo, it is... I don't know. I don't know what it is exactly. 
the serve stood out. I've talked about the serve a lot. It's clearly because of his handball back background. I'm very much convinced of that. Because usually a serve that that big, you have two things with the serve. Obviously, you have height, which is a factor, because Zoe's not that tall. He's only listed at six feet. And then you have technique. And most of the biggest serves on tour, they have a technique that has a fluidity to it where you have a lot of momentum throughout the service motion. You're creating momentum into the trophy position, into the racket drop, up through accelerating towards the ball. Kazo does not have a lot of momentum through the service motion. He kind of stops. He kind of stops in his trophy position for a second. It's not a very fluid, continuous motion like Kyrgios, for example. Kyrgios has the most beautiful, it's like water, the way his motion just is a one continuous uh, movement. Kazo kind of like, he just chills right here for a second and has to then snap from there. Um, it's amazing. All I'm saying is it's amazing how big he hits his serve. He's, he grew up playing handball, and that's a sport where you throw the ball all the time. And I just think because he has developed that fast twitch overhand motion from throwing balls, it's, uh, it's helped him with the serve. That's my only explanation. But he also seems to have a really good all-around game. I like his backhand. Um, and he's got athleticism. He's got a little spunk mentally also. From Pietro. Do you think Djokovic will be influenced in the head-to-head -head against Sinner now that he lost to him at an important stage or the fact that he can justify it by just having a poor performance that will not impact his confidence? Yeah, I think it's going to take a little bit more for Sinner to, to really instill doubt into Novak Djokovic's head. I think it's going to take a little more. He will Novak will 100% rationalize it by saying, I just played like crap. And that's why he beat me. So that's that's what he's going to tell himself. No doubt about it. He's not going to take the court against Sinner next time they play and lack belief. No way that happens. It's, it's very, very hard to get a player as accomplished and as confident as Djokovic into that place. It's not easy. It's going to take a lot more, but it is possible. It's going to take a lot more than what Sinner has done to Novak to get Novak into that place. All right, this is a kind of a double comment. I included the reply because I think the reply is really, really good. It's from uh, Jin Feng. Hey, Gil, impressed by your preview before the men's final match. One thing I noticed is the strong contrast between men and women's seeds performance. On men's side, almost all top seeds get into quarterfinals and semifinals. On women's side, only three top tens got into the fourth round, if I remember correctly. Shin Wen is the 12th seed and is the top ranking player in the top half after only the third round. I think you mean the bottom half. Uh, I think this only I think this happens often on the women's side. For example, Layla versus Emma in the US Open. Why are the top women players less consistent or dominant? I hope this is not a question causing political controversy. Uh, yeah, no, I, I get it. You're just genuinely curious from a tennis standpoint. Uh, this reply is really good from Tenacious. Uh, one, this one is the most important in my opinion. Best of five lowers the chance of upsets. Two, 
The most prominent style of play in the women's game is lower percentage tactically and strategically than the men's. Similar amount of power, less topspin. When Sabalenka has an off day, she is less likely to, likely to win than, say, Medvedev. And when someone lower ranked has a great day, the woman is more likely to score an upset than the man. Three, men's serves tend to be more dominant statistically, leading to less chaotic match progressions, which lend themselves to more stable results. Sexists would say it has something to do with the mentality and perceived lack of mental or physical strength of the players, which makes this a potentially controversial question. That's unfortunate because comparisons between the men's and women's games are fascinating and reveal some interesting insights about the game itself when not sullied by casual misogyny. Yeah, so that's really well said. I think those are all good points. Best of three versus best of five, as we covered earlier in the mailbag. It is a factor. It is not the end-all, be-all. It does not explain it 100%, but it is certainly a factor. Uh, the fact that women play flatter. And then, yeah, the, the serving, I think that's a good point, too. Next one is from Nick Grows. Hi, Gil. Apologies if you already covered this, but a few questions about Novak. One, did you hear Patrick Muradoglu's take on Djokovic's worst Grand Slam performance, the pressure being too much, the possible relief he might be feeling, etc.? Do you agree with that and with PM's prediction that Novak will still win two to three slams this year? Yeah, I did watch that. I don't get it at all. I completely disagree. He likened it, like, like Patrick compared it to uh, what Djokovic said about the Adrian Manorino match. Adrian Manorino obviously lost the first two sets, six love, six love. And Djokovic was like, it was kind of a relief to lose the first game of the match at the start of the third set because there was so much tension building in the arena. And when Novak said that, I totally related to it. I totally, I so connected with that. thought it was so interesting because I have been at those matches. I have attended them at slams in, in these big stadiums with tons of fans and with one player who can't win a game. I have attended these matches. I'm, I'm sure so is Patrick, by the way. He, is, he has certainly been at many of them. When that happens, a certain manufactured tension starts to build. Every time the player gets to 30, oh, is this the one? Is this the one? Are they going to finally win? Uh, and it just becomes this situation where... Again, it, it feels like this quest to get on the board, to win one game, it starts to consume the entire match in a way that raises the stakes when really there should be no tension. There should be no tension whatsoever. Uh, it should just be like, you know, a blowout match where one player is cruising, one player is struggling. But yeah, I, I completely get what Novak is saying, where he's like, the tension in the arena started to really just build and build and build. The longer it happens, the worse it gets. As soon as the one player wins the one game, that whole energy kind of goes away. Okay. Okay. It wasn't it wasn't a triple bagel. Ha, <sighs> sigh. I totally get that. That sensation, that does not exist over the course of a a five-year run of winning Australian Open titles. 
Like that same energy that that Djokovic was feeling in the Manorino match. Novak, I don't think, is feeling that at all when he's going through Australian Open runs, right? What I also don't get about it is, um, like, why this one, right? I've, okay, yeah, he's won 10 Australian Opens. What about the pressure of winning the fifth? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Like, what is it about trying to win the 11th? That's some magical pressure? Like, something about 11? I, I just don't get it. So, I, I just don't agree. I don't agree that pressure... I don't see... Like, why was there more pressure? I think Novak... There was more pressure on Novak when he played at Wimbledon. There was more pressure when he was trying to catch Nadal or pass Nadal. There was more pressure when the Grand Slam is in play. Okay. Uh, next one. Would you agree that on some level, Sinner was simply fortunate to meet a super subpar Novak in the semis? Luck plays a factor in life, as it does in tennis. Every top player has had his slash her brushes with it, including Novak. So in this case, of course, Sinner's game was incredible all tournament, and his mental resolve to come from 0-2 down in the final against hardcourt specialist Daniil was awe-inspiring. But knowing what we know about Djokovic at the AO, if the real Novak showed up, uh, chances are slim Sinner would have come out on top. Agree? No, I don't agree with that either. Um, you can't say chances are slim. Y you just don't know. These are two players who are on a similar plane, a similar level. Uh, as I said, I thought you know, Sinner was just really knocking on the door of Tier 1, and all I needed to really see was a slam run. And... Uh, you know, now he's there. So we can't pretend to have the arrogance of knowing what would have happened if if Djokovic played great. We we cannot be arrogant enough to think we know. We do not know. I say the same thing about one one other example, which is a little bit of a different situation, but it's the the Zverev what if uh with Nadal when you know when Zverev rolled over his ankle and tore tore up his ankle against Nadal at Roland Garros. And a lot of people, I'll just say it, Zverev himself, he loves to act like he was going to win that match. It's like, who the hell knows? You don't know. God doesn't know. Rafa doesn't know. It's a tennis match between two very, very close together players. This is not an example of a match that we can say clearly would have gone one direction had the circumstances been different. No. Not for that match, not for this match. From SJ, hi Gil, two questions here. One, one thing I love about Sinner's game is how he's an elite pace absorber slash redirector. That's definitely not a word. Um is what SJ said in parentheses. Redirector, I propose that to be a word. I would like to uh, bring that into the tennis vernacular. The comment continues. But also an elite pace generator. That makes a perfect blend between offense and defense, which is only helped by his elite movement. Can you touch on this and maybe list any other players that you can think of that can do this? I'd say Djokovic is the best example, but his pace gener generation has never been on this level. Hmm. A combination of pace absorption and pace generation. 
honestly, I think most of the best players have somewhat of a decent balance in being able to do both of these things. There's no doubt about that. I don't know that Sinner as a pace absorber slash redirector, I don't know, elite, elite feels strong to me. Uh, good, very good, but elite feels pretty strong to me at this time. Uh, one guy, though, who did who does come to mind is Agassi. Now, Andre, Andre didn't hit enormous, but if you left the ball, if you left the ball up for him, if you gave him anything to hit, a sitter, so to speak, or a short ball, so to speak, he was pretty good at punishing it. And part of that was how early he would take the ball, like inside the baseline, a lot of the time. But um, Andre was someone who you couldn't rush. Very hard to rush him. And he also was uh, was really good offensive baseliner. Let's go to the second one. Uh, did Nadal's three matches make your stock on him go down or up? For a lot of people, seems like doomsday predictions are coming out. But to me, he was pretty good. He played a fairly high level in his first two matches. And I think that Jordan Thompson loss aged well, considering how great of a fight Thompson gave Tsitsipas at the Australian Open. And considering Nadal could have easily won that match in straights if he didn't choke. Clearly, his body is not ready for best of five yet, but Nadal's showing makes me believe he can make some noise on clay, which is easier on the joints. I'm, I agree. That's a stock up for me. Rafa played way better than I thought he would right away, even though I thought he'd play pretty well. And it's not like he got injured, really. Like, let's face it. I don't think he got injured. I just think... I just think he he got banged up enough, you know, he felt enough, he saw enough, obviously the MRI was enough, where he exercised extreme caution and decided it was basically too much of a risk to play in Australia. Like when you have a guy who says, look, I have a micro tear, this isn't bad news for the season, but I'm not going to play Australian Open. That's to me what it says. So the fact that he played a great level of tennis moved way better than I thought he would. Seriously. And that was the real question. And then, you know, he, he had a tough match against Thompson. There's no doubt about that. It was not good that he didn't win it in straights. But uh, it's stock up for me. First tournament in that long, you know, it's stock up for me. Next one is from Juliu. Hey, Gil, I noticed that Yannick Sinner has one of the best forehand swing volleys from far back in the court. He often hits it after his serve as his plus one forehand to win the point on his terms. I think it's a recipe to his serve success. Did you notice that as well? I can't remember anyone who uses this shot as frequently as Yannick. Also, I have never seen him miss one of those. Actually, while writing this, I think it's a shot that's far more common on the WTA. Thanks for your content. I completely agree. Yes, yeah, such a great comment. You are so right. Um, I won't be surprised if at some point I'll do a, a breakdown of this and why it's beneficial. But um, the amount of time you strip by taking a floating ball that is going to land deep and by taking it as a forehand drive volley is, uh, is immense. It makes a huge difference. You also have the downward gravitational momentum of the ball. <laughs> gravitational momentum. Uh, here's me trying to sound scientific. Anyway, the ball is dropping quickly. When the ball is dropping quickly, you also have a, a counter force, 
which helps you generate immense amount of topspin. At the same time, that same flight path and that counterforce makes it more difficult to time the ball. And that is why it is usually seen as a high-risk, high-reward shot. But Yannick tends to hit the ball pretty clean, and he gets this super, super heavy forehand drive volley. He um, He's able to basically strike the ball before opponents are able to, you know, get on balance and recover. And it's an awesome, awesome weapon because it takes a lot of shots that would be pretty good defensive shots and turn them almost kind of neutralize the neutralization, if if you will. Anything, are there any other, anything else here in this comment that I'm missing? Definitely more common on the WTA. That That's a fact, no doubt about it. Ostapenko hits them great. Aslan Karatsev hits them pretty well. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. Uh, from Max Dang Vu. Hey Gil, you had so much belief in you had so much belief in Sinner after his 2023, and now your faith is rewarded. What did you find most surprising and rewarding about Sinner's AO run? For me, the undeniability of his serve and forehand combo was the most rewarding and most surprised, and I'm most surprised by his range of solutions in terms of skill set and dealing with adversity in the latter three rounds. Can't wait for when Yannick next plays Carlos. So the question here is, what did you find most surprising and rewarding about Sinner's AO run? The answer to that most surprising is the forehand consistency to me. You are so right about the undeniability of his serve and forehand. Uh, now, the clutchness in his serving was impeccable. And let's face it, if Sinner didn't make so many first serves down break point, he likely would have had a less a less straightforward path to the final. And that doesn't mean he would have lost a tennis match. And honestly, if, if you're asking me, I don't think he would have. But in terms of the sheer dominance that we saw from Sinner from a scoreline standpoint and the fact that he barely was dropping his serve, he was facing break points. He just kept saving them. And a lot of that was making first serve, so the serve is there. But what I noticed is uh, he would he would rarely miss the aggressive plus one forehand. There was a level of consistency on that ball that was uh, very Djokovic and Nadal-like. Very, very impressive how consistent that forehand was. So that, to me, was most surprising. Because, look, I like Sinner's forehand. I've always liked it. But I've also always seen it as a shot that it's just, it's not that consistent. Like he's going to hit some, going to make some errors on it. And yeah, the level of consistency I could not have foreseen. So let's see, what's the most rewarding, most rewarding part about it? Mm. What did you say? His range of solutions? I'll say mental composure in the final. Nerve management. That's most rewarding. You know, when a guy, when a guy who is, he, he lost, I, I've said this before. If you really look at a lot of Yannick Sinner's first big matches, he was not a player like Runa or Alcaraz. Runa and Alcaraz 
immediately won a lot of the big matches that they played early in early in their career. You know, for for Alcaraz, you're looking at major finals, you're looking at big finals. For for Runa, you're looking at a match like I don't know the Paris final against Djokovic and a lot of his first meetings against top players, which he was very successful in. For Sinner, it's you make the final in Miami, you play a bad match, terrible match. He played in that first Miami final. I think he played Hercotch. Uh Second Masters 1000, another really bad match. First major semifinal, bad match against Novak. I'm not saying he should have won it, but he should have played better. So it's rewarding to see somebody who had to work through those, had those tough moments and those difficult losses uh, to just, I mean, first major final, you're down two sets to love. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're talking about composure. You're talking about finishing strong. You're talking about uh, finding a better and better level as the match goes on. That's rewarding for me. Next one is from member Enigma Paradox. Hey Gil, after watching the AO 2024, were there any surprising results or performances that would make you reevaluate your top 10 predictions for the year? Thanks Gil, that was a great AO with some amazing matches, by the way. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, reevaluating the top 10. I am always asked this question after the Australian Open. My answer is always mostly no thank you. You know, I, I know better than to really change my opinions after just one month. I'm, I'm a little bit more stubborn than that, but I, I think it's, a, I think it's healthy stubbornness. I think if you're constantly changing your mind all the time, you're actually just being way too reactive and it's actually probably a bad thing in terms of trying to be accurate with your opinions. Anyway, um, I'm looking at my top 10 now. Nadal at 10. Here's the thing. Here's what I'll say. There are guys who I left out who looked really good to start the year. And that is what I would struggle with. Honestly, it is the fact that Dimitrov looked unbelievable in Brisbane, that Kasparud has looked way better on hard court than he did last year, like miles better. The fact that Taylor Fritz was awesome at the Australian Open. That Jack Draper started the year and had an impressive run in Adelaide. Like all of these guys who I made honorable mentions because I considered putting them in and I, I think they're really good and that's why they're honorable mentions. Otherwise, I wouldn't have mentioned them at all. All those guys. Oh, Demonor. Demonor looked great. So those five guys who I left out, believe me, all five of them have had good starts and all five of them have me thinking, gee, they're really not going to get in the top 10. Really? It's just tough. You know, who am I, who am I taking out? 
Um, I think a lot of people at this point would say, take out Tsitsipas. He's not going to do it. I'm not quite there yet. Not quite. I understand why you, why you say that, but we were in the same spot with Medvedev um, a couple years ago. Herkoc at a career high number eight in the world right now. I still feel good about leaving him in. You're not taking out Rublev. You're not taking out Zverev. You're not taking out Runa, I don't think. Are you taking out Nadal? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it would be taking one of those guys and replacing them with Nadal just because, okay, right away there was an injury setback. And if you are, you know, if you're in these small margins, if you need something to decide, the fact that he's already missed, had to kind of go to the sidelines and miss some time, maybe it doesn't bode well for Rafa's ability to stay healthy for the rest of the year. Maybe. But not really. Like, I, I still feel pretty good about my top 10, even though a lot of these guys outside of the top 10 have been impressive. Next one is from Spatula. Hi, Gil. Two Alcaraz questions. One, we've seen with Novak and Sampras, among others, that sometimes there can be struggles after the first major success. Do you think that we'll be looking back on this time in a couple of years and laughing about how we freaked out about Alcaraz's losses. 100% will be laughing. 100%. I think there was... There's already been this at a smaller scale. Alcaraz took losses after his US Open title in 2022, and he didn't play very well indoors, had some head scratchers, then missed the Australian Open. Um, I think at that point, there were there was some naysaying that looked a little bit silly after some of the indoor hardcourt losses. So this is a, a more extended version of that. Of course, I think we're going to look silly. The ability is too much. Here's what I, I have to say. Forget the results. Forget the diagnosis. The reason I was so high on Carlos Alcaraz so quickly, again, it wasn't about the results. It was oh, this guy is the best athlete in terms of movement I think I've ever seen on a tennis court. I still think he's the fastest player of all time. Um, maybe rivaled by the uh, super youthful version of, of Nadal, but I still think Alcaraz is the fastest player of all time. Who has unbelievable hands, terrific volleys, powerful, hits Really big off of both wings. The forehand is as big as any forehand ever. As heavy as any forehand ever. It's too much ability. I'm sorry, it's it's too much ability. A, a guy who likes the game, who likes to play, who's motivated, who enjoys it, enjoys the process. So you're also going to put a good head on his shoulders. You're going to give me an athlete that good, with skills that good, with a good head on his shoulders... And you're going to tell me that guy's just going to have a disappointing career? No. You can't tell me that. I'll always disagree with that. 10 out of 10 times. No matter what happens in terms of him not winning a title for six months when he's 20 years old. So yes, I do think we'll look back and laugh. Okay, two. Alcaraz clearly likes to step in and take his second serve returns early, but it results in so many missed returns into the net, especially on the backhand. Do you think he should adopt a deeper return position on second serves in order to get more in play? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of I'm a huge fan 
of moving back for second serve returns if you have two things going for you. If you have a heavy forehand and you're fast. You have to be willing to run. You have to be willing to get back inside the court. If you're not a mobile player, then it's probably not a good idea to give up that positioning. If you have a heavy forehand and you move well, then I think it's a great idea to move back and give yourself time to start the point by ripping a really, really heavy forehand that you've had plenty of time to set up for and then working the point from there. Um, and I think Alcaraz, especially on the deuce side, he should be doing that all the time. From Head Huncho. Hey, go me again. Big fan. I have a two-part Alcaraz question. One, uh, is Alcaraz winning another Grand Slam this year the only way it would be considered a successful year for him? I don't have much to say in response to that, but probably, probably he'd feel that way. When you start your career and you win a slam in like kind of your first two years on tour, then going into, going into your third year on tour, ultimately not winning a major would probably feel like a failure. Now that is a product of the amazing success that he's had thus far, but it is also a reality. Okay. The second part of this. How difficult do you see it for Alcaraz to defend his points from last year, especially Madrid and Indian Wells? Novak is back in the U.S. and Sinner's early form this year already. Eh, I, I don't know. I mean, first of all, I don't think the defending points things matters. I think it was the first comment of this mailbag, thank you if you've made it this far, uh, where I said, what, what does it matter if Alcaraz drops to four in the world? And I just can't think of a scenario where that means anything. Well, in a similar, in a similar vein... What does defending points matter? You don't need to defend points uh, unless there's a seeding thing at play. Again, it matters that you're in the top 32. It matters that you're in the top 16. It matters that you're in the top eight. It matters that you're in the top four. Now we're talking about seeding. But Alcaraz is not in danger of dropping out of the top four. So if, if he loses in the semis of Indian Wells and Madrid and he loses those championship points, I just don't think it's that big a deal. Uh, in terms of how difficult it is, I think Madrid and Indian Wells, though, are great, great conditions for him. Some of the best. And I'm not just saying that because he won the titles. Both of them are incredibly high-bouncing conditions. One of them is slower. One of them is a little quicker. Madrid is quicker, actually. But still, both of them great conditions. All right, next one from David Hughes. By the way, uh, I grew up at a at a tennis club, and one of the coaches' name was David Hughes. I don't know if this is the same David Hughes or if this is a different David Hughes. If it's the same David Hughes, hello, hello. Uh, hi, Gil. I feel like there is a lack of hot takes in the mailbag, which you include in the outro, oh, sorry, intro, for what you want in the mailbag. So I thought to give you a few hot takes or perhaps overreactions to what we saw in Melbourne. One. Curios at commentary was annoying as he kept breathing into the mic and almost moaning while talking during the point. Um, yeah, I think that I, I kind of liked, I, I really liked Nick, especially when he loosened up and, and had a lot of fun with it. He probably does. He probably should, if he wants to continue doing this, work on just keeping quiet during the point when commentating. I, I do think that is a good constructive uh, piece of, of feedback for him. Uh, two, Sarundalo has top 10 potential, but his effort is horrible. I 
pretty much do uh, look horrible is a strong word, but I also think that he sometimes doesn't try hard enough during matches that he does not embrace the grind. And I mean, I don't know in the first round match that he played, for example, it was against this uh, Australian qualifier uh, little guy, really fun match. He was getting totally outworked. The effort was, the effort in that match was horrible. I'm willing to say that. If you're going to give me one match, I can say the effort was horrible. And uh, does he have top 10 potential? Yeah, I would say if the mentality and the serve are both, if they both get there, then he can be a top 10 player. I agree. Uh, three, the top four in the rankings won't change for three years if no serious injuries happen. Uh, three years. Um, sure. Um, I like that take. Look, for, for Novak, by year three, that's, that is a long time from now. And I think of the three, Djokovic is probably the guy who I think would least likely to be in the top four of the rankings. If, if we're looking at the year... Uh, what are you saying? At the start of 2020, start of 2027 is what you're saying. Yeah, I would say of the three, Djokovic and then Medvedev are less likely than the younger counterparts in Alcaraz and Sinner. Uh, here's one from Bruno Alves. Nadal scheduling decisions. So Nadal's going to play Doha. Here's the reason. Carlos Moya said, we do not want Rafa changing surfaces constantly. Hardcore, clay court, hardcore, clay court. So if if Nadal played uh, the golden swing, uh, then we would have that situation. Rafa's priority, it seems, um, is to play a somewhat normal season. So remember what I was saying? I was saying, does he want to play a clay season or does he want to play a tennis season? It seems like he wants to play a tennis season, in which case... I totally agree with his decision to play Doha and not the Golden Swing because, you know, he, he should be, he, she shouldn't be going from clay to hard. Uh, it doesn't make much sense. He sh also, I don't think, should be resting all this time. He should be looking to play matches. So I like that he's playing Doha. He's not resting until March and just starting restarting at Indian Wells. At a certain point, you got to play. And even mentally, like, how annoying must must it be for Rafa to spend so little time actually competing. It must be horrible. So Nadal scheduling decisions makes perfect sense to me. I thought in the case that he didn't want to play the Sunshine Double, in that case, I thought it would have been better for him to play South America. But considering the fact that he's playing the Sunshine Double, I'm glad that he is playing hardcourt in February. All right, we're going to go with one more. It comes from Owen. Hey, Gil, I was wondering if you could give some thoughts about Cam Norrie's level so far this year. He seemingly has had a strong resurgence after the struggles of last year's post-Indian Wells, taking Zverev to the fifth set breaker and taking down an inform rude. Thank you for the great content as always. Well, look, um, really good stuff from Norrie. And what stood out to me, talked about it with Steve Flink a little bit, is his ability to execute an offensive tactic with confidence. And against Rude, it was, we are going to approach his backhand. Come forward, very, very confident on the volleys. Uh, but, I mean, he was looking, any opportunity, he was coming forward into Rude's backhand. 
It's a really good way to play Casper. And uh, Nori was so committed to it. Cam is very resourceful in a tennis match. Like, I, I just think he's very open-minded about how he needs to play and executing certain things. And against Zverev, it was the same thing. What did he do? What did he do against Zverev? It was slow ball the forehand and then drop shot. The it was all about the drop shot against Zverev. He was like, "Look, I'm not going to be able to create much offense with the way Zverev drops back deep in the court, and with my ground stroke power, and the fact that coming forward against him is hard because he he hits passing shots so well." What are we going to do here? How are we going to finish points? And how are we going to be offensive against Zverev? Another thing is outlasting him is not a good plan either. So Nori was like, drop shot, drop shot, drop shot, drop shot, more drop shot, drop shot again. What I love about that is that's not necessarily Cam Nori's style. It was just looking at who am I playing and how should I play him? And then being so committed to doing that thing over and over again. Which, as we saw with Medvedev in the final, it's hard, especially under pressure. It is hard to go against habits under pressure. Nuri did that really well against Verev and Rude. Sasha played a good fifth set tiebreak. So, hopefully Nuri has a, a more consistent season. Remember at the end of last year, I talked about this with Gruskin. I was like, are we sure Cam wasn't injured? Now, I still don't know. I, I don't know, but I don't. I also feel like we didn't see the real Cam Nori second half of last year. And maybe he's not a top 10 player, but I also think that he is solidly and thoroughly a, uh, a top 25 player, in my opinion. That will do it. Going to be uh, a little bit of time off, and I will be back uh, midway to late uh, next week after a little trip to New York. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.